For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom. Oklahoma is looking at declaring a revenue shortfall for the remainder of the current fiscal year. The declaration allows lawmakers to tap the rainy day fund, which currently holds $806 million. Officials blame a drop in oil prices, delaying tax payments to July, and closing businesses, which reduces sales tax collections and increases unemployment. Ryan, are you surprised by how quickly this happened? No, I think that this has been anticipated. The governor said as much. The legislature and the legislative leaders have anticipated that we were headed towards something uh, akin to a revenue failure. Uh, for months now, I mean, we've we've seen that you know declining revenue off of estimates. You know, we saw that beginning with the decline in oil prices, in part because of the global oil uh, uh, conflict that's occurring, separate and apart from COVID nineteen. But then, whenever we saw oil reduction, oil demand reduction in China as a result of COVID nineteen, there. Uh, we started to see that rift ripple effect, you know, back in January, February in Oklahoma with oil prices, gross production taxes. Now we're beginning to see it, I think, in terms of things like income taxes. We're starting to see maybe not for this fiscal year, but that projected fiscal year ahead of us. You know, the effects of COVID-19 and the uh, global oil conflict will linger for months, if not years to come in Oklahoma. Neva. Uh, Absolutely. And I think uh, what we have are lawmakers now uh, very diligently looking at these numbers as they're trying to finalize the budget. I mean, the good news uh, when we hear from the appropriations chairs in both the House and the Senate is that no agency cuts or furloughs are expected as a result of the revenue failure declaration uh, that is anticipated. But when we look at the uh, when we look at the overall picture, I think at least in the short term, with this billion plus in savings, it puts us in a very good place as a state to weather this storm. And I think um, uh, it certainly uh, puts us in a much better place than probably some other states in the nation. And we'll also be getting uh, a billion and a half in uh, federal stimulus dollars. I think about 844 million, I think was the number that will go directly to the legislature for appropriation. So uh, all of that, at least in the short in the short term, for lawmakers having to finalize a budget for FY21 moving forward, it at least uh, at least at least puts us in a place where we are not having to be talking cuts or reduction in, in critical services. And that is good news for Oklahomans. Now, Ryan, you mentioned that a couple of weeks ago that you were hoping mm-hmm. that just like the 2008 stimulus yeah. package, that there'd be something to help Oklahoma. Do you think that will help us when we go into the next year, next fiscal year? Oh, absolutely. Well, and there's some talk as to whether, there's some question in the legislature right now as to whether or not that federal stimulus fund that goes directly to the legislature for for appropriation could even be used to shore up this year's appropriations. So, um, I mean, we may see immediate investment of those uh, budget stabilization funds from the stimulus package coming directly into the Oklahoma uh, fiscal picture for this uh, for this current fiscal year, the fiscal year that we're currently in right now. So, um, my my thought is that you know we're in a as Neva said we're in a in terms of you know bad pictures, uh, it could be a lot worse. Uh, and uh, we we do have some initial savings to weather the storm. Uh, there's some question as to you know we've got the Constitutional Reserve Fund and. There's some reporting saying that the the money that's there, the 200 million or so that's in that fund, can't be used yet. I've talked to some lawmakers this morning trying to find out, you know, why uh, the 
uh, necessity for that hasn't been triggered yet and what this what statutory mechanisms we're waiting on there. Um, but so short term, you know, we've got enough to kind of bridge the gap. I think long term, it's a much um, it's it's a much dicier picture for the state of Oklahoma. And, I, you know, I anticipate that there's going to be the need for the federal government to step in again with some budget stabilization dollars. These are important. And I'm glad that this has happened. But I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if a year from now or even six months from now, Congress isn't talking about injecting more money into state budgets. And even how- I, I think that's I think that's true. And the other the other uh, factor to be infused in in terms of dollars will be uh, money's coming from the federal side. Uh, to uh, to many of the communities, uh, Oklahoma mm-hmm. City, Tulsa, larger metropolitan area, metropolitan cities, uh, for certain, as well as uh, as well as the tribes, and all of that discussion is ongoing. And clearly, the municipal league and all of the uh, cities and and uh, towns across Oklahoma, uh, with sales tax revenue being <laughs> being the anchor to what uh, where their budget dollars come from, uh, there are many, many questions. And, and obviously, there will be a great appeal to the federal government for more support from that area. I think the other thing interesting just to note is the fact that the governor in, in his uh, executive order uh, for all 77 counties to go under the emergency, he also in that order that was uh, uh, that was filed on April 2nd, he did declare uh, and invoke uh, uh, invoke the uh, first special session uh, uh, of the 57th legislature to convene at the Capitol starting uh, Monday uh, this on Monday morning. So I think what we will have in place now is not only lawmakers finishing up their regular session and the budget and whatever other business that they take up, but also it appears based on the governor's action that we will have a uh, um, we will have a special session in the mix as well for whatever time is uh, deemed necessary. Well, yeah. Well, now we're talking that special session could happen. I mean, it's set for Monday, uh, and you know, so we're we're looking at that's. And when we talk about special sessions, they're called extraordinary sessions. This this one is truly extraordinary. A, a special session within a legislative session, uh, exclusively for the purpose of lawmakers coming back and giving the governor some authority to deal with the uh, some additional authority to deal with the the health emergency in Oklahoma. The closing of businesses in Oklahoma uh, is taking its toll on unemployment claims in the state. The Oklahoma Employment Security Commission released unofficial numbers earlier saying 45,000 people filed claims last week. Now we are recording this on Thursday, so the OESC will release official numbers later today. But Neva, what are your initial thoughts here? Well, I think, again, it's it's no surprise given the, the world we're living in right now and the fact that... Uh, uh, that we have in place, uh, uh, basically Oklahoma is shut down for business for all practical purposes, except essential services. So um, I think the um, Oklahoma Employment Security Commission, the executive director, uh, has uh, uh, already been working with uh, the U.S. Department of Labor uh, to allow to allow Oklahoma to access dollars through the CARES Act of 2021. That will obviously uh, be necessary not only for uh, workers who have been laid off, but also it's going to provide some benefits for self-employed people who otherwise wouldn't qualify for assistance and at least have that option available. So uh, it, it's a it's a serious time not only in Oklahoma but when we look at the numbers nationally, 6.6 million workers mm-hmm. applied for unemployment benefits uh, last week. So, I mean, we have this huge number uh, now, largest in 
in uh, modern history that have been recorded. And uh, those numbers, I think, will only we'll see weekly continue to grow as uh, as we see this uh, this long term uh, episode that we're in. Uh, and the fact that basically business as we know it uh, in uh, Oklahoma and the nation has been curtailed for all practical purposes. Ryan. Well, and, and Neva's comments about the, the federal um, money coming in to help with unemployment. I mean, the, the small business loans that are around right now that allow for small businesses that have been particularly hard hit, the ability for them to um, apply for forgivable loans to cover payroll expenses is huge. Mm -hmm. uh, because what that does is that it gives, you know, we're seeing this record number of unemployment claims filed. And we're seeing that because small businesses have been laying folks off, mid-sized businesses, large businesses, laying folks off. The 45,000 number is probably tip of the iceberg. We're going to see you know, much more than that. These historic numbers are getting so big that it's hard to just wrap our head around. And uh, one of the real problems in trying to flatten the curve here has been that people still feel like they've got to show up uh, because they got bills to pay. Uh, they got mortgages to pay. They got rent to pay. They got to buy groceries. And there hasn't, we talk about the immediate assistance of you know, $1,200 coming in the mail to, uh, or into the bank accounts of, of some uh, Americans. Now, that's great, but that's hardly going to be enough to get people through. And it's really not enough to keep small businesses afloat. They've got to be able to make payroll. So these, these loans, and I encourage everybody to, to go to the state website. If, you're, if you run a small business, what we've got to do to keep people at home really is to say, you keep people on your payroll. And if you'll do that, uh, tell them to stay home, flatten the curve, stay safe. And at the end of all of this, we'll, we'll, I say we, the American taxpayers and the federal government will forgive that loan. Uh, it's an enormous stimulus part of the stimulus plan and, and, and businesses need to be taking advantage of that right now. You go, you apply through private banks, uh, you know, call your bank and they'll get you through that loan process, get that money in the door so you can keep paying your employees to stay at home and keep us all safe. And uh, also, also, I'd mentioned, ahead, I'd mentioned that, well, the, the OESC had mentioned that they've got a billion dollars in the, in, to, to help kind of protect for this, which is incredibly solvent for, for a state, state agency. Absolutely. And I think uh, I think that uh, it just further demonstrates the fact that as we look at uh, all of these needs and areas, I think the state is uh, well positioned to begin to address some of these things. As Michael said, I mean, part of it is just making sure that folks understand what is available and begin to access that by making the initial application uh, or if they've been laid off or a self-employed person needing assistance, that they make contact either with an online application uh, or through uh, claims filed over the phone. And that uh, information obviously readily available to them. So um, it, it, Michael's right in terms of what's going to happen long term. We don't know what the final price tag on all of this is going to be because it's going to go on for such a long period of time. But the two trillion dollar stimulus uh, package that Congress passed was an initial very strong start. And I think what we see now, uh, just like what we're talking about in Oklahoma, is making every effort to assist in every area possible uh, as Oklahomans will be will continue to struggle with uh, uh, with uh, where we are as a state and as a nation. The coronavirus pandemic might have unintentionally killed a series of initiative petitions to send a variety of issues to the Oklahoma voters. Because of Governor Stitt's state of emergency declaration, all signature gathering has been paused. This could impact issues such as recreational marijuana and redistricting. 
Ryan, what are you hearing from your supporters? Well, I mean, so, you know, first of all, uh, even before the governor and the secretary of state, you know, ended, suspended all signature collection in the state of Oklahoma, um, you know, conversations within campaigns were happening. I'm, you know, part of the state question 805 campaign, which is a criminal justice reform measure. Um, you know, we began efforts even before the state asked us to, uh, to shut down signature collection. And we, we had, we were in a good spot with our signatures already, um, you know, we, of course, wanted to preserve as much time as possible. You always want to get as many signatures as possible. But we were in a good spot, and there just doesn't, didn't make sense responsibly to send people out to collect signatures, to expose themselves, and to expose the public. Um, you know, that campaign, I think, is is one. So you've got 805 out there, you know, regardless of whether, you know, when, when it's responsible to go collect signatures again, uh, they're in good shape. Um, you know, others are not, you know, redistricting adult use marijuana, state question 807, which I'm a proponent of, um, you know, those, I think it's, it's really impossible to imagine a scenario in which they are able to responsibly and feasibly undergo the signature collection effort to make the November, 2020 ballot. Um, those are issues that we'll probably see, you know, possibly in a special election in 2021, uh, there could be something that comes up in 2022. Uh, but for, all intents and purposes, you know, those campaigns, um, at least in their current iteration, are probably you're done for. Uh, and you know, that's just that's just the the nature of it. Even if the governor and the secretary of state lifted that suspension, um, I think internally those campaigns would have uh, real long, hard conversations about whether collecting signatures even after that would be feasible or responsible. I just don't see how that could uh, possibly take place. Neva. I think Ryan is exactly right. I mean, at the end of the at the end of all the conversations that take place, there's still a process in terms of deadlines that have mm -hmm. to have to be in play. The secretary's the secretary of state's office has a has an August 24th deadline uh, for petitions to qualify for the November 3rd ballot. And when you start backing that up in terms of the, the process uh, to allow the cushion for uh, time for verification of the signatures, as well as building in a cushion in case there are, uh, there are court challenges, you have uh, you have basically a real more realistic uh, time frame of something along the lines of the end of June uh, for all of this to to wrap up in a collection the signature collecting process on a petition. So um, we'll just have to wait and see. But I think I think Ryan is right. I think in terms of uh, a lot of focus on the likelihood of multiple uh, state questions on the ballot that we might have anticipated. Uh, a month ago or two months ago, being on the November ballot, I think that is less likely today in uh, in light of all that we're talking about in terms of uh, all of the things that are uh, restricting the, the process to be able to move forward. And Ryan, it seems like the only one that was really important was the redistricting, because that one had to be done this year to be in effect for when redistricting happens in the next couple of years. Well, as the proponent of adult use marijuana, I, I won't. Well, it's true. To... I mean, but we can always come back at a, a future. Yeah, no, I understand. Yeah. I understand. No, I. So I, I you know, and, and in visiting with the folks in the redistricting campaign, I think that there, um, you know, there's still a potential uh, that you know, that something can move there, either legislatively mm -hmm. in, the, in in the interim, um, you know, between 2020 and 2022. Um, you know, there there are a lot of things that can still happen there, and there are some opportunities, I think, for 
uh, Oklahomans to weigh in on that issue. You know, and just to you know, give our listeners some inside baseball, uh, the deadline that Neva was talking about in August, you know, that, that deadline is not an arbitrary deadline. That deadline is so that we can get ballots to the printer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and get those ballots printed, um, and you and might to say, our military well, overseas. Yeah, military overseas. Mm-hmm. That's why we've got to get them printed that early, is so that they can be mailed out uh, largely to uh, Oklahomans that are serving in the military, so that they can get their ballots in. Yeah, and uh, one other thing uh, is that there's uh, there was a bill to kind of make it a little bit harder for ballot initiatives to move forward, but it looks like that actually might be dead because of what's going on in the legislature right now. I think we can hope so. I, I'd say that a little bit harder is an understatement. I think it would make it impossible in Oklahoma. Uh, HJR 1027 would make future initiative petition efforts in its current form uh, as it passed out of the House. If the Senate put that on the uh, the uh, because the Senate is basically one vote away from putting that on the, the ballot if they wanted to. They could put it on a June ballot. They could put it on a November ballot. One vote and they put it up. If that if they do that, one, I think it would be incredibly irresponsible of them to do that in this in this time of emergency. Um, but if they did and it passed, HJR uh, 1027 would make all initiatives, you know, whether that's adult use marijuana, you know, things like medical marijuana, criminal justice reform measures, uh, even measures that I disagree with, like uh, you know, pro-life measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would make it impossible for people to get the signatures necessary to place things on the ballot in Oklahoma. Hopefully that is dead in the Senate for the time being. One thing, too, I mean, the state question 802, which uh, would expand with is the Medicaid expansion uh, question, has already qualified for the ballot. So uh, what it is still right. awaiting is a uh, an election date by the governor. And he, uh, according to um, uh, the prescribed timelines, he has until August 24th to place that on a November ballot. I think we can anticipate it's not going to be on a June ballot uh, at this point, but uh uh, it is something that is still out there, and the election date has not been set yet by the governor. The state is facing a lawsuit over Governor Stitt's call to add abortion to the list of suspended procedures to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. The lawsuit seeks a temporary ban on Stitt's order, saying a delay makes it impossible for a woman to access the procedure in Oklahoma. Ryan, are plaintiffs likely to get an injunction against this executive order? Yeah, I think that they are. I think that they'll get a, a quick injunction, and it's important to be able to send that message to uh, people in Oklahoma that are ac- trying to access abortion care during this uh, emergency. the The idea that these are that a constitutionally protected uh, right—it's a fundamental right to, to health care—would be curtailed during this um, uh, under the uh, under the premise that it's uh, that it's uh, you know, elective and and not necessary is just ridiculous. Uh, you know, these are timely procedures uh, and in fact could actually undermine public health by forcing women to cross state lines to access abortion care. Uh, or um, you end up in a situation where women, after, if they're forced beyond a particular point, they're either prohibited from having access to any abortion care in Oklahoma whatsoever because of our otherwise restrictive abortion um, limits uh, that are in law and that have survived challenges. Uh, or you push women beyond the point where they're able to access um, a medical abortion, where you, you're, you're taking um, you're taking pharmaceuticals to induce an abortion rather than a surgical procedure. And so, um, you know, we're we're increasing risk to women here, increasing risk to overall public health care here. And I think it's unfortunate that the governor waded into this issue during a time of of uh, public health emergency. Neva. 
I, I think what the governor in that executive order did say that should be noteworthy is that it would allow uh, abortion, if necessary, to prevent health risks to the mother. Um, and I think uh, what we see here is uh, is an ongoing, uh, uh, very strong difference of opinion on public, uh, you know, from a public policy perspective. Uh, the the attorney general. Uh, handling this uh, on behalf of the governor. This is the, I think, 11th lawsuit that this group has brought and filed in Oklahoma in the last 10 years. Uh, so it's an, it is an ongoing, it, it's something that we see ongoing. In this particular instance, I think Attorney General Hunter uh, made it very clear that, uh, that it is the view of the governor uh, and the state that that this lawsuit uh, uh, basically drains significant resources, both medical and legal, uh, from emergency efforts, and likely would uh, bring harm to Oklahomans as a result. So, uh, you know what what Ryan has described, what the governor and the and General Hunter have described, clearly polar opposite views on this. But uh, we'll just have to see what the court said, what the court says now that the lawsuit's been filed. And Ryan, the courts, other courts have shot down similar situations in other states already. Is that right? Yeah, and and, and I, I don't think that anything's uh, that we should expect anything different in Oklahoma. You know, the the Attorney General Mike Hunter, his his comments here are kind of rich. I mean, he's saying, well, this is a significant drain on resources from the state during a time of public health emergency. Well, it is a significant drain of resources, but it's not caused by the uh, the plaintiffs in this lawsuit that have you know filed to protect this constitutionally protected fundamental right to access reproductive health care. It was caused when the governor waded into it and said that a timely, safe procedure uh, is being um, is being uh, you know um, uh, interfered with by the public health emergency. It's just not. I mean, there's just no reason why the uh, the the pandemic right now should stand in the way of a woman ac- accessing her constitutionally protected right to have abortion care in the state of Oklahoma. Um, and so all he had to do was say. You know, no, that's not covered under the the definition of elective surgeries or procedures that I'm contemplating here. Um, but instead, he waded into this. He pandered to uh, part of his political base, and you know that's the reason that the attorney general is going to have to defend this. And I think will ultimately the state will ultimately lose in front of a, a federal judge. Oklahoma is mourning a former U.S. representative and senator from the Sooner State, the man affectionately called Doctor No. Tom Coburn passed away over the weekend at the age of 72. Neva, what are your thoughts on the death of Coburn? Well, I mean, Dr. Coburn certainly was someone who uh, had a remarkable uh, a political an impact on the political landscape in Oklahoma uh, from the time he was first elected to the U.S. Congress, uh, coming back after serving the three terms that he said and voluntarily leaving, coming back uh, in a special uh, election and winning um, a seat in the United States Senate, someone who was respected on both sides of the aisle. And I think that that's one thing that is uh, significant for all the listeners to really uh, remember is this this is someone who uh, uh, treated everyone with uh, respect, uh, was passionate on his views, a, a uh, uh, unwavering conservative, but also a populist, a very, which made him very popular in Oklahoma on both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, but I think... Uh, in the in the uh, the time we're in right now, it's uh, it's regrettable that uh, it does not afford an opportunity to uh, uh, to uh, in a in in a timely fashion, uh, really be able to memorialize and uh, um, 
uh, have have what I think all of us would like to see, and at some point in the future, uh, we're told will occur an opportunity to really uh, uh, kind of say say the things that uh, have individually been said over the last few days, but need to be said from a historical perspective on someone uh, like Dr. Tom Coburn and what he uh, what he really uh, brought to the uh, the state of Oklahoma and the impact he had nationally as well. Ryan. Well, as a fellow contrarian, I, I certainly can appreciate. Uh, I can. I have, have a lot of appreciation for for Senator Coburn and and what he did. And you know, Neva said that he was respected on both sides of the aisle. He was also uh, disliked on both sides of the aisle. I mean, he he had he had detractors within the Republican Party, the Chamber of Commerce in particular, on a number of occasions. <clears throat> he was on the opposite side of issues with them, and of course, on the on the Democratic side, you know, his opposition to. Uh, your responsible ways to address climate change, to you know, trying to stand in the way of LGBTQ equality at the federal level. You know, a lot of things. I mean, he he was an equal opportunity offender, uh, and he had <laughs> friends on both sides of the aisle that included folks like uh, you know uh, his former uh, colleague in the Senate and then later President Barack Obama mm-hmm. uh, counted right. him as a close friend. Um, you know, he was. If you think about uh, Senator Coburn, Dr. Coburn. He was kind of accidental. Uh, he was he was an unlikely person to win that second district congressional race back in 1994. Uh, Virgil Cooper, uh, a name that most Oklahomans don't remember, was the the guy that you know ran you know spent sixteen thousand dollars and beat an incumbent member of the United States House of Representatives, Mike Sinar, uh, mm. you know an otherwise you know pretty popular Democratic member in Washington back in his district beats him, upsets him in a primary race. And then Virgil Cooper does basically nothing, runs a virtually nothing campaign against Tom Coburn in that general election in 1994. And Tom Coburn gets ushered in to one of the most uh, revolutionary Mm -hmm. uh, new uh, um, Congresses in modern American political history in 1994 with Newt Gingrich at the helm as speaker. And he he and Newt didn't always get along. Uh, And so you know, he's this, he's kind of an accidental political figure who became one of the most significant political voices in Oklahoma during his uh, political career. That's true. And, you know, when you talk about that election, Ryan, I mean, that district at the time had not elected a Republican in 70 years. And the registration uh, was three to one Democrat. So, I mean, it was an extraordinary upset. I mean, uh, clearly made, um, kind of teed up by the fact that Mike Sinar did lose to Virgil Cooper. But I think that was uh, that was kind of the uh, the whole tenor of his uh, of political career. Even when he ran four years, uh, when he came back four years after leaving Congress and was a late entry in the U.S. Senate race, uh, when Don Nichols uh, stepped aside, he was not the he was not the heir apparent. In fact, the uh, party favorite at the time in that Republican primary was uh, former Oklahoma City Mayor Kirk Humphreys. So right. uh, he he's someone that he kind of always uh, ran against the grain. He's someone that I one of the I think one of maybe the uh, a great description by a journalist that was given during uh, 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 recently was. Uh, was a comment that was made that said that uh, Tom Coburn was the most ego-free, funny, and sensible person you could meet. I mean, so you're right. He was a he was a political enigma in in so many ways, and someone that uh, 
uh, was not afraid to mix it up. He, he, he said what he thought. He, he fought the fights that he, he passionately believed in. And it didn't really matter to him whether it lined up fully with the, even his own political party. And I think that in many ways ingratiated him, him with uh, many Oklahoma Republicans, not necessarily, as you say, Ryan, sometimes at odds with whether it was the chambers or other groups that were looking for assistance from their delegation on uh, uh, trying to bring the bacon back home, so to speak. Uh, <laughs> sometimes he, uh, you know, he was uh, a roadblock in that. But uh, at the end of all of that, I mean, here's someone who uh, he had an exemplary medical career, a doctor in, in uh, Muskogee. Uh, in fact, when he first ran for political office, one of the things uh, that many people remember in, in some of the direct mail was, you know, here was someone who had delivered several thousand babies, you know, and, mm-hmm. and uh, someone who was highly respected in the community. And that really afforded him kind of the gateway to be able to move into uh, a political arena as, a rel- as someone who was a political unknown and be able to then accomplish what he accomplished. And Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at kosu.org.